0: Hello and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Salo, and I'm thrilled to be back with you discussing one of the most loved, most quoted films, certainly in British film history and probably just in general film history. I'm talking, of course, about Bruce Robinson's iconic, eclectic, unknowable, close to the vest with nail and eye. This is one of the most seminal of all British films. It's got a fascinating journey from page to screen. I'm excited to get into the nuts and bolts of this film and unpack a little bit about how I think it works. Here's a few quotes about Withnail and I. James Ponsult said, quote, While it conjures the feeling of slowly sinking to your death in the mud of life while watching your friend wave to you from solid land, it also manages to be one of the funniest films ever made. The film producer George Ayub said in a worthwhile documentary about handmade films, the George Harrison-funded independent British film production studio of the 70s and 80s, he called it an iconoclastically brilliant movie. And Bruce Robinson's close personal friend Andrew Birkin brother of Jane Birkin, famed Hermes Bag Muse, said, quote, it's the fact that it's coming from him, Bruce Robinson. That's what transcends something like the full Monty, where you feel a group has sat down and written a comedy. Nails, not a comedy, I don't think, even though it makes you laugh. I think that's a very, very pointedly accurate diagnosis from Andrew Birkin, as we will see. The film itself is of a very specific time. For viewers of the film, who might have been Robinson's age when the film came out in 1987, those people lived through being teenagers and 20-somethings in the 60s and the 70s. And the film at its heart is most of all a nostalgic love letter to that very special time in their lives And in the life of the world, and particularly of British society undergoing an upheaval of the sorts that it did in the 1960s. I think one of the most interesting, I wouldn't say unexplored aspects of the 60s, because much has been written about both sides of this, much has been written about the 60s in America, and much has been written about the 60s of swinging London. But it's interesting to contemplate as we get the opportunity to do with the film, with Noel and I, what were were the similarities and dissimilarities at that exact time in both of those places? And I think in England, the 60s was a very specific experience as represented by Bruce Robinson's writing on the subject, his conversations on the subject, interviews that he's done, the novel that he first wrote which was the source for Withnil and I, which he then adapted into a screenplay, which because of George Harrison from The Beatles and the people around him who allowed handmade films to become a always problematic business concern, but certainly a place where films like Withnil and I found the opportunity to be made where otherwise they never would have been made. So I think Withnell and I works as a bit of a time capsule for people of Robinson's age, you know, who were teenagers or 20-somethings in the 1960s. But for those of us like myself who encountered the film in 1987 or 1988, in my own teenage years, you know, we are the generation really that I think made the film the... Uh, the iconic classic that it has become. We're the people who embraced it at the time that it came out, not per se people in their 50s who had been teenagers in the 60s. And certainly in America, this film, I recall speaking directly to myself and my group of friends, not because we understood something of the political underpinnings of the film at the time, although the countercultural aspect of the film is as tied to its politics as the humor is. So I think there's something universal in this film, which is a certain mindset of teenage otherness, which has always plugged into whichever crop of teenagers may be exposed to it in whatever decade they're exposed to. I think the film works also because many people, and certainly many people in England, of a certain class strata were like the I in the title. Withnell and I. The I is the person who had a friend at school and after school, a friend of apparently greater means, greater status, A friend whose family might have had wealth and connections and power, who seemed educated and worldly and wise, fun, in all capital letters, dangerous at times. All of these things that Withnail is, it's very intoxicating to be in proximity to that and at an impressionable age to have your head turned by that. So, I mean, this is the age-old story of Brideshead Revisited. Marwood the Eye of the Withnell and I title, although he's never such named in the film. Marwood is the Charles Ryder of Brideshead Revisited. And Withnell is Sebastian Flight. Even there in the names, you can see what we're getting at in both of these works of art. And in something like Saltburn right now, which is essentially a retelling of this same type of tale. So if you're a kid who grew up as I did in a home that had constant worries about money, if your daily existence as a teenager that most overly concerned with appearances times is always is always being reminded of difficulty of what may or may not be possible financially, and you find your way, as many kids like myself did, to other families that appeared And I think that's a very critical distinction that you learn. Other families that appear to have a life free of the concerns going on in your own home, who have effortlessly, it seems, breeding and manners and a worldliness that feels very out of your reach. It's intoxicating. And it seems to you or me that this is the situation into into which you really should have been born into. That's what you're telling yourself at the time. Now, what happens in time in those types of relationships is exactly what happens in Withnell and I. And this is exactly why I think Andrew Birkin is saying it's not really a comedy. It's actually because of your different circumstances when you have a friend like Withnell. You are the scraggler, the American often. You're the upstart, the knob, the lower born, the grasper. You inevitably have to claw your way to get somewhere. The Withnail in your life has what seems like the freedom to just live, but you come to learn with wisdom and age that that freedom is really sort of a trap. And Withnail himself is never freed of that trap. So this podcast is inspired a lot by watching Bruce Robinson's 2020 Esquire magazine watch along commentary. I gather this was a thing they did in the pandemic, and ironically, it's the only commentary track you can find by Bruce Robinson for the film. The film is on the Criterion, which typically includes, among its extras, the thing most cinasts want most which is the writer and the director of the film talking about the film <laughs> well in a book of interviews that robinson participated in he says very specifically why there are no such interviews on the criterion i'm going to quote him he says quote it's very prestigious to be on criterion it really is taxi driver and citizen kane type of stuff so it was very flattering to be asked But Richard said to Criterion, what do you sell these things for? $90 a piece? Do you have to pay a royalty? And they said, of course we do. Every copy we sell, $15 goes to Mr. X. They weren't going to pay us, though. We thought, why would we be doing all this work promoting this movie for other people to be constantly taking the money? They don't even send me a fucking birthday card. So I refused to do it, and Richard refused to do it. And it's the only Criterion disc that hasn't got all the yak on it. Now, I don't know about only, but it's certainly the most glaring Criterion disc that is missing something that people really need. And I would, uh, to follow the history of handmade films is to completely understand how a filmmaker and an artist could say something like he just said there, which is, I'm not going to participate in that because I don't get paid because the ownership of the film is so convoluted because handmade films was not an efficiently run business and subsequent to it going tits up, the business has been kind of a mess. The film is not widely available streaming. um, And the criterion business was such that Bruce, after all these years, or I guess whenever they put the disc out felt that he wasn't gonna participate in that. So ironically, he participated in what essentially is a commentary track in 2020 for Esquire Magazine, which I can't imagine he made any significant money off of or any of the people that have watched that. But that's what you have if you want to listen to Bruce's commentary about the film. And Bruce Robinson is a fascinating person. Uh, His commentary track is worth it and I think he's very funny and honest in the track about all of his various hangups, intimations of his own lifelong skirmish with alcohol, stories about uh, driving and whether you know he would think, and the time, is it a three-can drive or a six-can drive? Meaning how many cans of beer did he have to have to get from point A to point B as he drove around uh, England in the 60s and the 70s? He talks a lot about Um, what he describes as a 50-year love affair with red wine. And in 2020, he says that affair is off at the moment. Um, He's frequently aghast at seeing himself on screen as he watches the film. He's kind of charmingly narcissistic. Uh, He is a formerly incredibly good-looking young man. He's still very good-looking. But he was once held up for his beauty, his male beauty. He has some of that charming egotism about him. It's very shambolic, this commentary. At one point, he completely disappears off the screen and everything just kind of keeps playing on only for him to reappear, having apparently just had a shave and a cup of tea. In another, he's in the middle of a convoluted anecdote about a crocodile um, when he just disappears again (laughs) and then reappears. He has sidetracks where he's talking about the difference between wines from 1945 and 1953. It's, it's well worth listening to. And it actually got me thinking, is there an opportunity for me to do a sort of watch-along track for a film sometime? I don't know how you'd really do it. You, he's kind of like, okay, I'm pressing play, and the person presses play. So I guess it's possible. I thought about doing it for this episode because With Nell and I is, is essentially, what, an hour and 47 minutes probably gonna be what I end up spending talking about here. So um, it is kind of an opportunity to do some of that. We'll talk more as we get in through here about some of the issues that are present in Bruce Robinson's life and how they manifest in the film. I wanna talk a little bit about the film itself. The film is one of those films that right off the bat, It states a very declared intention, a sense of itself, its total commitment to being itself, to being exactly what Bruce Robinson intends it to be, right off the top. And that's because there's a brilliant establishing sequence set to a phenomenally moving and importantly live version of the song, Whiter Shade of Pale, performed in 1971 by the late King Curtis at the Fillmore West. Now, right off the bat, we're being told some very, very important information. What we're looking at is I, Marwood. He's in a bit of an existential crisis listening to this song, I guess. We're not quite sure if this music is meant to be diegetic or not, but he's smoking, he's looking balefully off. And then we have this brilliant pan across the just wanton destruction of this apartment, this living space that Withnell and I share. And it occurs to me to be a similar moment to the opening of Jackie Brown when Quentin Tarantino starts with this very New York City-based song that you would not think of for use in the opening of a film so thoroughly set in real Los Angeles. And so the use of Across 110th Street is something I've covered in many episodes here. You can go back and take a look. But similarly here, we're in similar territory. Because you have to remember, everything in a movie is there for a reason, right? It's not like they just got a song, so why this song, why this version of this song? Well, I think part of the reason is that it's a mournful elegy. It sounds like it's mourning the passing of a specific time. There's so much emotion contained in this song, and there's so much emotion contained in this live version of the song, which is particularly ballsy to me, to use a live version. This is the mournful tone. This is what the film is really all about. It's the end of an era. And the end of the era is manifested through the end of a friendship. So I encourage you, and I'll put a link in the podcast notes, Listen to this entire King Curtis version of Whiter Shade of Pale live from the Fillmore West 1971. It's mind blowing. It is one of the truly great live recordings. And it's so perfectly used here. It's capturing this moment in time, a moment that's already gone. In fact, it's already long gone by the time the film uh, is set in, even. And that's what the film's coming to terms with. Certainly by the time we see the film in 1987, it's a film about a time in the past. So live music recordings, I think there's a bravery to using them in this manner because they're not studio perfect. Neither is life. Neither are our reminiscences of these times. And this film using this song opens with these intimations of where this relationship between Marwood and Withnil ends. It's right there in the opening scene. His existential crisis is familiar to any of us whose anxiety has a way of lurching to the fore, regardless of your commitment to ignoring what it might be trying to tell you. And this scene is so brilliantly written, acted, and photographed as a start. And it introduces us to Marwood. and Discuss his problems in depth. Heads back to Some
1: extremely distressing the apartment. Room. Here we meet with I the first time. I don't want to hear anything.
2: Oh, God, it's a nightmare. There I tell you,
1: it's a nightmare. We've just run out of wine. What are we going to do about it?
2: I don't know. I don't know. Oh, God. I don't feel good. <sighs> My thumbs have gone weird. <laughs> I'm in the middle of a bloody overdose. Oh, God.
1: My heart's beating like a fuck clock. I feel dreadful. I feel really dreadful. So do I. So does everybody.
0: I mean, here you have the entire mission statement thesis of the film. You have Withnail coming up the stairs, drinking a glass of red wine, as Bruce Robinson himself will tell you later on in this podcast he used to do while writing screenplays of this sort. You have Marwood in a state of existential crisis and brilliant... Collapse and breakdown, drug and alcohol induced. And you have Withnail's careless insouciance, his lack of regard for Marwood. So do I, so does everyone. While he's lighting a cigarette, he couldn't be less involved in what is the problem with Marwood. And again, this is the top that Bruce Robinson has started spinning so that at the end, when it wobbles and falls onto the table and the friendship is concluded, all of that starts here in these introductory scenes.
1: Look at him, look at Jeff Wode. His head must weigh 50 pounds on its own. Imagine the size of his balls imagine getting into a fight with a fucker? Please, I don't feel good. That's what you'd say. But that wouldn't wash with Jeff, no. He'd like a bit of pleading, add spice to it. In fact, he'd probably tell you what he was gonna do before he did it. I'm gonna pull your head off. No, please, don't pull my head off. I'm gonna pull your head off because I don't like your head. we Have got soup? i did not get any soup, coffee. Why don't you use a cup like any other human being?
0: And <laughs> That's just a brilliantly with no moment right there too. Why don't you use a cup like any other human being? He's just so dismissive of any concern other than himself. Now, Bruce Robinson, and you know, I'm gonna talk a lot about Bruce Robinson here because I think this is such a personal screenplay. In so many important ways, and the otherness of Bruce Robinson was one of those fascinating things akin to the life story of Bobby Darren and Jack Nicholson. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Men who find out later in life that that one of their parents is not who they thought they were. Bobby Darren famously grew up thinking that his. Uh, well, he grew up in life thinking that his mother was his sister and his grandmother and his mother was his grandmother, only to learn that his sister was his mother and his grandmother was his grandmother, if that makes sense. Nicholson had a similar thing, I think, with his mother. And Bruce Robinson grew up um, and only found out later in life. I think he was 30 years old, according to Wikipedia, when he, this, that would have been about 1976, he was 30 years old when he learned that his father was really his stepfather. Um, his stepfather was named Rob, Rob Robinson. And his real father, um, it's interesting because in researching this, in the documentary that he participated in. From two thousand, which you can find on YouTube, I'll put a link to it in the podcast notes. In that documentary, he says he doesn't know who his real father was, but in the Wikipedia page now, it has been updated to provide biographical details. And the Wikipedia page says that quote: his parents were Mabel Robinson and an American lawyer Carl Casariel, who had a short-term relationship during World War II. His father was a Lithuanian Jew. As a child, Robinson was constantly brutally abused by his stepfather, who was an ex-RAF navigator and a wholesale news agent. He drove a newspaper truck for a living, who knew that the boy was not his son. And Bruce tells the story about telling his father, his stepfather, but who he thought was his father at the time, that he'd been accepted into the Central School of Speech and Drama, class of 1964, 3,000 prospective actors auditioned, and only 30 got in, and he was one of them. Bruce says, quote, he looked at me and he walked away. And so this childhood is what really fuels all of the Bruce Robinson Sturm und Drang that you can encounter in the documentaries, in the book of interviews. There's a book available on Amazon called Smoking in Bed, Conversations with Bruce Robinson, which I gather he might regret today because you know, talking about alcohol is a big issue when assessing Bruce here, because he himself is quite open about wherever he happens to be in a moment. So in the 2000 documentary, he's drinking a lot and pretty troubledly, I would say. He doesn't look well. And he's very upfront about what his habits were He also speaks of being an alcoholic in the Smoking in Bed book. But then in the 2020, uh, the 2020 watch along, he is much more, um, he's sober, he says it. And you can tell the difference, which is what's fascinating. Listening to him talk in the documentary, reading him talk in the Conversations with Bruce Robinson book, and then watching and listening to him talk in the 2020 watch-along are almost three completely different people. And you can really see starkly the, the positive difference in the way Bruce ruminates on people, places, and things um, in the 2020 watch-along where he is self-admittedly sober. Now, the book of interviews where he's kind of probably drinking um, – He's, he's a little bit all over the place. He uses a lot of, um, he's, he uses some, a, a kind of shorthand derogatory term for gay people, which granted may have been widely used in the 80s or the 90s, whenever he did this book. But um, it has the feeling to me of very, loose conversation fueled by alcohol that maybe you would come to regret later down the road had you participated in it. But he's certainly not someone who hides from any aspects of uh, his life. And I don't think he would be embarrassed by who or what he was at any given time. He seems very focused on the now. So With Nell and I is the story, the personal story that stems from Bruce Robinson's life post-acting school with his Sebastian Flight, who was a character uh, named Vivian McCarroll. And, you know, when a film takes on the size that Withnell and I has, of course, there's a lot subsequently written and said about who is who and who influences who. But Bruce and Vivian McCarroll were with Nail and I. They cohabitated for a time after school when they were down on their luck, unemployed actors. Here's a little bit about him talking about his
3: friendship. I was very lucky in many ways because the school I went to, there was no education, but there was a school play. And that's how I kind of got into the idea of of wanting to be an actor, which had brought me to this very flat after having gone to drama school with the other guy portrayed here by Richard E., uh, whose name was Vivian, and he was my closest friend and bitterest enemy, and we loved and hated. We had a a pretty amazing relationship, though, in that we went through a hell of a time together for a couple of years, and Viv was very instrument in... um, in a way, in in, in in giving me a clue, you know, when I was at drama school, they said you had to pick a poem to read a poem. And I didn't know, I'd been to a secondary modern school, I didn't know what a bloody poem was. I honestly didn't know what poetry was. And then every morning, Vivian, when we were in this particular environment, in this, this kind of flat, he, not every morning, but he used to uh, have at breakfast, he used to have something he called the Baudelaire Principle, and the Baudelaire principle was was uh, a cup of black coffee with honey and a nugget of hashish dissolved in it, and you stir it up. And then you drink that. We both have a, uh, a, a Baudelaire principle for breakfast. You'd get a bit stoned, go for a walk in Regent's Park, then yak, 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 all day, then all night, yak, yak, yak. But anyway, I said to him one day, I didn't know what it was. I said, What, what was the Baudelaire principle, Viv? And he said, "Well, you know, you know who Baudelaire was, you know, and the hashish, hashishien and the hashish eaters, and the, I'd never heard of bloody Baudelaire." And I went.
0: So here are the foundational building blocks of of Withnell and I. And again, this is so familiar. I think for that dynamic of the friendship, where as where if you're the I character, you don't have the benefit of even turning your nose up at the education that the Withnell character has absorbed just by dint of his class. Right. And Viv McCarroll is one of those people who like Withnil uh, burned so bright socially, but never was able to translate that into a profession or a successful manner of daily living. And he did have a few acting clips of the time Here's a brief clip of him in a film called Edna from
3: 1971. <laughs> well done. You see what I mean? a lad. <laughs> hey, darling. Here, look, you
4: want to you wanna break that and then stuff it up your nose and then, like, really sniff it, get it right back, and uh, you should get a buzz off that.
0: That's Vivian who actually is a bit more like Danny the dealer in voice there. Um, But you can tell he's a very beautiful looking person, but you can also tell he's not really much of an actor. And that's something that Bruce talks about at some length as well. And also about himself. But part of what is so magical about Withno and I is when it's set. And the summer of 68, I think, is what Bruce Robinson is referring to. And he, you know, I remember I talked before about the differences between the 60s in, in America and in Britain. And in a way, this is what Bruce's experience was because he had gotten out of school, had been lucky enough, slash, unlucky enough to obtain an acting job in Italy. And then he returned and everything was different. And this is what you read about a lot in reading about the seen in London in the 1960s, is that it really was as if a switch had been flipped. Of course, it's not as simplistic as that, but it could have felt that way to people walking down the street who had been gone just for mere months. And here's Bruce talking a little bit about that time, which does inform the screenplay and the film.
3: But very, very frequently, um, Vivian and I used to go into Regent's Park, get over the gate at night with a flagon. and we go and sit there, and we look at the walls, and yak, yak, yak all night. We'd be talking about the walls, the terrible situation that uh, that we were perpetually in of uh, uh, impossible to get a job. Um, I, I'd I'd had a I'd had a job, uh, one job, one film, uh, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, which I'll come back to uh, later in the film. But I, I'd come back from Rome. It was the summer of '68, '68, 60, and it was known as Acid Summer because when I'd when I'd left London uh, early in '67 to go off to Rome, everyone was sort of wearing blazers and ties and brogues, and you know, not quite that bad. It was the '60s. But when I came back, everyone was a freak. They'd all dropped acid and you know, freaked out, and everyone looked like a, a maniac. Um, And it was known as Acid Summer.
0: Um, So that's the particular magic that we're drawing upon here, his lived experience of that. And this is a fundamental experience for Bruce Robinson, which he's glancingly acknowledging there. And he's going to talk more about it in the Watch Along. Um, And it comes up in With Noah and I because it is the genesis of the character Monty. And one of the most fascinating aspects of the film, which we'll get to as we get into talking about scenes from the film and Richard Griffith's astounding portrayal of Monty and all of its multifaceted, multilayered brilliance. But the experience that Bruce is talking about there is of being, I think, only 19 years old. And he gets cast in Romeo and Juliet, which is a Franco Zeffirelli production, and I guess the best way to explain this is to just simply use his own words because really it's the story of a Me Too moment experienced in 1967 by a young man uh, perpetrated upon him by a, another man in a position of authority. I'm gonna read you this, this section here. Consider how strikingly similar this description is of this, this event in 1967 to what we've read many, many times from many, many women, particularly in the Harvey Weinstein lawsuits and situations. Consider how similar this, these events are. So he's talking here in this, uh, this is from the book of, docu- of the Interviews. He's talking about playing Benvolio in Romeo and Juliet. He says, "Quote: Benvolio's a lousy part. Even if Laurence Olivier was playing it, it's got nothing much going for it. There isn't anything of substance in Benvolio. In my case, Bendovrio would be a better name for that character." From night one, Zeffirelli was interested in more than my acting abilities. I arrived in Rome. I'd never been on a jet aircraft before. I'd barely been abroad. I'm in his apartment in the shower. And he says, let me dry your hair. Next thing, I'm in a caftan in a room full of queens. They gradually disappear, and suddenly the tongue is down my throat, and worse. It was a monstrous shock to me, and a very bad start to our relationship, because I'm not gay. Plus, here comes another father figure, another figure of authority, and I immediately react in the way I've been taught to react all through my childhood— You're going to hate me and manipulate me, which was what I felt. The next morning, the producer of the film is in the apartment. He's got white shoes on, pink hipsters with a white belt and a gold bauble hanging off his chest. I went up to him and I said, you're not going to believe what happened last night. I told him, and he said in a camp voice, really? He was a raver too. And I was so naive. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. I don't condemn gays. One of my closest friends is homosexual. And he's a guy I could sleep in the same bed with and feel safe because it's just not on the agenda. But Zeffirelli likes pretty young blokes. That's his gig. And it freaked me out. You have a lot of power as a director, especially as a famous director. And because I didn't want to go to bed with him, he did everything he could to harm me both physically and emotionally and succeeded in both. I was levitating with terror all the time because he was so cruel, end quote. And one other comment I thought was particularly pertinent to this discussion is he says, quote, it was terribly disturbing. It was the thing that actually on the positive side made me want to be a writer because to arrive in Rome straight out of drama school and get hit on like that was, you know, why have you cast me? Have you cast me because you fancy me or because you think I can play the part? And I think that is so at the center of the actor's mental dilemma so often when personal physical attractiveness is in the equation, right, why are they interested in me? And similarly, for the Withnails of the world, they too have a sneaking suspicion that everyone is only interested in them because of who they are, because of their money, because of their name. So these are things that Bruce Robinson is intimately familiar with and experienced. And when we talk about Monty, we're gonna talk about how incredible it is that despite this traumatic experience, and he goes into great detail in talking about this elsewhere, I'm not gonna get into all the gory details here, but trust me when I say it's a traumatic experience which had very, very severe consequences for Bruce Robinson, including hospitalization, mental exhaustion, you know, various times he chalks it up to asthma or something else, but it's pretty clear that this was a traumatic event being cast in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. And you can see him in the movie, and it's, again, like Vivian in that other strange clip that I played, Bruce himself says, you know, I wasn't a very good actor. I was just really good-looking. So he has the self-awareness to know that. And... That is part of the genius here of what's going on in Withnell and I. getting back into the film, in this opening sequence, which establishes Withnell and I and their impoverished circumstances and the squalor in which they're living, the class issues, which are never too far beneath the surface in any any British conversation of two or more people, there's a sizing up, there's a putting in place, there's a... Fascination with the other side. There's all this stuff that goes on in the British class system that's fascinating and is present just through them being themselves. And in the beginning of this film, you know, they visit the wolf enclosure in the park, which is where the film concludes. And originally, um, Daniel Day Lewis and Bill Nighy were considered for Withnall, and Kenneth Branagh was considered for Marwood, but he only wanted to play the Withnil part. I think in one of the commentary tracks or one of the interviews, you know, Bill Nighy is famously sober after a period of not being sober in his youth. And he had a reputation as a big drinker at the time that they were casting this film, I believe in the, the mid or early 80s, mid 80s. And I think Bruce Robinson says somewhere that the idea, Bill Nye was great, in his audition, he really was the character, but they felt um, having an actual drinker would have been problematic because Richard E. Grant famously is a teetotaler and doesn't drink at all, which is part of why he's such a great actor because you would never know that watching this film. He so perfectly embodies some of the, uh, the characteristics and qualities of the alcoholic here without belaboring them the self-pity
1: four hours to opening time god help us we've got an imbrication
2: <laughs>
1: to rub on us you fool we can cover ourselves in deep heat and get up against the radiator keep ourselves alive till 12. jesus look at that apart from a raw potato it's the only solid to have passed my lips in the last 60 hours.
0: You know, their time together is not joyous. They're, they're not having laughs. And Marwood's inner life is very underplayed by Paul McGann, who's brilliant in the role. You know, let's not forget, the film is with Nell and I. So it's really from Marwood's perspective. And the voiceover underscores that. This is the voice of Paul McGann as Marwood that you hear.
2: Gives the right time twice a day. And for once, I'm inclined to believe that Withnall is right. We are indeed drifting into the arena of the unwell, making an enemy of our own future. What we need is harmony, fresh air, stuff like that.
0: Now, of course, this, this is this is played over Richard E. Grant covering himself in some sort of a, some sort of a a heat cream because they have no heat in their flat and they've run out of alcohol. And here you have, you know, Bruce Robinson is a writer. He always was a writer and you have his voice there really echoing a little bit for the first time, the hint of Hunter S Thompson with, with whom I think he shares an affinity and he would of course go on to direct an adaptation of one of the lesser-known Hunter S. Thompson books, The Rum Diary, with Johnny Depp, I think in 2011, I want to say. Um, we're going to talk more about the Hunter S. Thompson thing later, because it does come back into the film. And this scene is all about their ambition.
1: Bad patch. Rubbish. I haven't seen Gilga down the labor exchange. That doesn't he retire. Oh, look at this little bastard. Oh, it lands... Plum roll for top Italian director. Of course he does, probably on a tenner a day, and I know what for: two pound tenner tip and a fiver for his ass.
0: Now that's clearly directly referencing the Zeffirelli moment, and part of why this screenplay is so brilliant is it's real. You know, it has it has a truthfulness to it that you can't script. And the inner life of Marwood is all about why Bruce's screenplay is so brilliant at ascribing a vibe and a feeling without at all adhering to really any of the supposed quote unquote rules of screenwriting. He captured this moment in time. He perfectly ideated the characters on the page and in the casting. And so they are rather than they are presented to us as characters in a film. It's not one of those movies that's really in love with its own cleverness, although there is plenty of cleverness in the dialogue, but it doesn't really have time for that. Its charm, I think, lies in its ability to just be perfectly content with being itself and to let that do the work. And that's really rare. You know, it's rare. It's part of why I think we have to be thankful for the influence of something like Handmade Films, because I'm not sure that a film structured like this would really be allowed to exist in a more conventional studio system. And although the film is called With Nail and I, and they are the two main characters I would argue it's two other characters who are the best characters. We meet the first one about 18 minutes into the film. And this is one of the great screen characters of all time as far as I'm concerned. And I'm talking about the great Ralph Brown as Danny the dealer. You could not, (laughs) you couldn't make this up.
4: Eddie, you're looking very beautiful, man. Have you been away? St. Peter preached the epistles to the apostles, looking like that. Have you got any food? Mm. As a matter of fact, I've got a servlet. How much is it?
2: You can have it for nothing.
4: I see you're wearing a suit. What's it got to do with you? No need no, to get uptight, man. I was merely making an observation. I happened to be looking for a suit for the coal man two weeks ago for reasons I can't really discuss with you.
0: (laughs) I mean, to to describe, uh, auditorily the genius of Ralph Brown's portrayal of Danny, the dealer. It's just an impossibility because his look, his physicality, he is absolutely spot on. If you've ever encountered any dangerously drugged out freaks, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or now. He absolutely nails it. And they tell the story of interview, of uh, auditioning actors to play Danny. And I think Bruce says that it's that first, that's the way he says, the way he appends the, the word man. To the first time he encounters uh Hello.
4: Marwood. You're looking very beautiful, man. Have you been there what?
0: That that delivery was apparently tricky to get right because he kept because other actors were putting the emphasis on all the different types of words. And Robinson says that Ralph Brown just inherently had this delivery, this accent which was a combination of a female hairdresser that Bruce Robinson knew who um, you know, was of the lower economic strata and, and spoke in this spoke with that sort of that tone that Danny has. And I think Danny gets pretty much all the best lines in the movie. You know um, when he talks like the, the, there's a way that he talks that is, I think one of Bruce Robinson's great gifts as a screenwriter is he has the ability to write dialogue for characters that feels so realistically of those characters, Um, but it doesn't feel like it's all from the same pen. You know, that's kind of a common criticism that you'll hear sometimes is like, well, this writer, you know, all his characters sound alike. They all sound like himself, Aaron Sorkin. Um, I love this bit here.
4: It's a sideline. You can have that. Instructions are included. Yeah, my partner's got a really good idea for making dolls. His name's Presuming Ed. It's just to give him the idea. She got a doll on Christmas what pisses itself. Really? Yeah, then you gotta change its drawers for it. It's horrible, really, but they like that, the little girls. So we're gonna make one that shits itself as well. Shits itself? He's an expert. Who's building the prototype now?
0: The idea of these two incredibly stoned people building a prototype is just part of the genius here.
4: Why is he behaving so tightly?
1: Because a gang of cheroot
4: vendors considered a haircut beyond the limit of my abilities. I don't advise a haircut, man. All hairdressers are in the employment of the government. Hair are your aerials. They pick up signals from the cosmos and transmit them directly into the brain. This is the reason bald-headed men are uptight. What absolute twaddle.
0: <laughs> the idea of Danny not recommending a haircut, that's the genius, right? Hair are your aerials. The, the, there are lines that Bruce Robinson wrote, and this, all of this stuff, this is not an ad-libbed film. So all of these specific lines are in the screenplay written by Bruce Robinson. And there's just so many twists and Danny gets many of them, you know, was it St. Peter wore that when he gave the epistles to the apostles. There's a bunch of little clever turns of phrase here, um, that really belong to Danny and Danny alone. And it's so good. And we have to talk about Richard E. Grant, who, of course, um, probably the most, he probably went on to the biggest career out of anyone involved here in the film, including Bruce Robinson. I'm sure Bruce would be the first to say that. Bruce has had a long career, but Richard E. Grant, you know, had a very specific thing, was introduced on screen in this film. And, you know, on the first blush, it's you. You could be forgiven for saying this is the best role in the film. Um, he's kind of the bad guy. He's the most operatic. It's the most histrionic role. He's on screen, you know, every shot of the film. Um, but he also has to do two or three very key scenes towards the end of the film, and we'll play them, with an incredibly broken awareness of his own failings, his own lost self. Those have to be 100% right when they occur. And Richard E. Grant has the ability to do those even at this young stage of his career. Um, and and so that's that's the... Alchemical chemical magic of casting that you get this marriage of performer and role and you get the whole package here and you get them at this young point in their career where the vibe on the set, because of course Bruce Robinson has never directed a film before this. He has no idea how to direct, but he's smart enough to know to say to the crew on the first day, look, you all know what you're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I need your help. So, don't be afraid to chime in with an idea or a suggestion. And he created a vibe, I think, on the set and was given the freedom to do that. By and large, although there were some moments when the first rushes were sent back to Handmade Films and Dennis O'Brien, who's sort of the nuts and bolts American business end of Handmade Films and the manager of George Harrison at the time, it's not really a film person, and I think the first rushes that they got back were from some of the scenes in Monty's Cottage, which were particularly dark and there's no natural lighting. Uh, it wasn't funny. You know, it's out of context. This is not a film where you're gonna show the rushes and someone's gonna go, oh my God, I get it all right away. It's gotta be, you gotta see the whole thing in order to get it. And so there, there were periods of uh, unpleasantness and unhappiness with, with Bruce as a director. But he was able to triumph through through, the, through the, the, uh, the help of his friend, Peter.
4: Because if you do, use another good I'll time. have to give you a dose of medicine. And if I spike you, you'll know you've been spoken to. You wouldn't spike me. You're too mean.
0: Okay. If I spiked you, you'd know you've been spoken to. That's the Bruce Robinson wordplay. It's so brilliant. This little tete-a-tete between Withnil and Danny. This is what I think is so great about uh, Ralph Brown's performance is <laughs> he nails the utter confidence of an otherwise penniless wastrel like Danny. His absolute self-confidence in every gesture, in every half-baked conspiracy theory.
4: you do, I'll have to give you a dose of medicine. And if I spike you, you'll know you've been spoken to. You wouldn't spoke me, you're too mean. Besides, there's nothing
1: invented I couldn't take.
4: If I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumour was a birthday present. I could take double anything you could. Very, very foolish words, man. He's right, Bliswell, look at him. His
1: mechanism's gone. He's had more drugs than you've had hot dinners. I'm not having this shag sack insulting me.
4: Let him get his drugs out. This doll is extremely dangerous.
0: <laughs> Danny pulls the doll out. It has food And, and he, he has, like, just r- old decaying roses and flower stems. And this is where he keeps his pills in the doll's head.
4: Tried. Phenodihydrochloride Benzylix. Street, the embalmer. Balls! I'll swallow it and run a mile. Cool your boots, man.
1: This pill's valued at two quid. Two quid? You're out of your mind. That's sense, man. You can stuff it up your arse for nothing and fuck off while you're doing it.
4: No need to insult me, man. I was leaving anyway. Have either
0: of you got shoes? <laughs> I mean, that is the perfect send off to Danny because no need to insult me, mate. He's hurt. His feelings are hurt. He has feelings. And there's a, there's a cutback to Withnell and Marwood where they realize they've gone a little too far with the badinage. They realize they've, they've, they've hurt Danny's feelings and they don't feel great about it. And then the great exit line is have either of you got any shoes? And he's just standing there expectantly as if it's the most normal thing in the world to be inquiring as to whether they might lend him some footwear. It's just, it's a brilliant thing. And at this point in the film, we have the introduction of Richard Griffiths as Monty. To me, Monty is the heart and soul of the film. And it's so weird to say that because, in part, Monty is based on Robinson's experience of being pursued by Zeffirelli on the set of Romeo and Juliet. Although Monty is not a depiction of Zeffirelli by any stretch of the means, he is every bit part of the woodwork of this era of British society and culture. He is the type of eccentric relative that Withnell would have. Yet the plot mechanism that Monty serves in the back half of the film is so fascinating to unpack, and we'll unpack it as we get there. But this introduction to Monty and his, the way he lives compared to the way they live is so brilliantly done, starting from as they drive up to his home in this broken down Jaguar that Marwood is always driving. You know, Monty has a old style Rolls Royce parked in front of his house with a tarp half covering it. And this is just, again, another one of those incredibly written parts that finds an actor who does so much more with it
5: well, hello. Come in. Just
0: as an actor, he's holding a cat in one hand and a glass watering can in another. I just think you think about stepping out from the film for a second and thinking of how many times Richard Griffiths probably had to do this. Well, hello. He's got to hold a cat and he's got to hold a glass water jar. <laughs> And then his living room is such a piece of shambolic
5: brilliance. Would you like a drink? Sherry. Sherry. Sherry? Sherry. Oh, Sherry. <clears throat> Do you like vegetables? I've always been fond of root crops, but I only started to grow last summer. I happen to think the cauliflower more beautiful than the rose. Chin chin. Do you grow? Geraniums. Oh, you little traitors. I think the carrot infinitely more fascinating than the geranium. Mm. The carrot has mystery. Flowers are essentially tarts. Prostitutes for the bees. Mm. There is, you will agree, certain je ne sais quoi owns them very special. About a firm young carrot. Mm, excuse me.
0: How's that for a character introduction monologue? A firm, young carrot? I mean, God, Richard Griffiths is so brilliant. There's a a wonderful book that i that I mentioned on Instagram that's newly out, all about the making of Withnail and I. I highly recommend it. You can go to my Instagram. Uh, page for full cast and crew, and and find the book and read a little bit about it. It's it's really the deserving compendium to this film, and it's filled with all kinds of details, such as this was an actual location. This is an actual apartment of someone uh, affiliated with the film and with Bruce Robinson. This is this is what his living room looks like, with some set dressing because of Monty's love of vegetables. And Monty's little uh, boutonniere is, is a radish, not a flower. Like, it's just so brilliant. And Richard Griffiths is, um, again, in a comedic performance, sometimes it's easy to lose appreciation for the genius of the acting that results in the comedy. But he is so effortless and so comfortable Um It just makes for an indelible character. And of course, Marwood is completely discomfited. So
2: the man's man. Eccentric. Eccentric is insane. Not only that, he's a raving homosexual.
0: (laughs) He comes in with the cat again. And here we're setting up the, uh, you know, the deus ex machina of the plot, which is not revealed to us until... The scenes at the cottage with Monty pursuing Marwood, and the whole reason that Withnail is able to persuade his
1: uncle—tempting to edge me towards Royal Shakespeare Company—he lies to him oh, about having a career. He's just had an audition for rep. Oh, splendid! So you're a thespian too? <laughs> Monty used to act.
5: Well, I'd hardly say that. It's true I crept the boards in my youth. But I never really had it in my blood, and that's what's so essential, isn't it, theatrical zeal in the veins. Alas, I have little more than vintage wine and memories. (laughs) It is the most shattering experience of a young man's life, when one morning he awakes and quite reasonably says to himself, I will never play the Dane. When that moment comes, one's ambition ceases. Don't you agree? It's part I intend to play, Uncle. And you'll be marvelous.
1: What's fascinating
0: here is Marwood doesn't know how to play his part in scenes like this. And believe me, that's familiar to me. I have had a friend in this same dynamic who's English of a family like this. And I too felt similarly at odds and at loose ends and at sea, which by the way, they all enjoy. They know you feel that way and they enjoy it. So Marwood doesn't know how to do his part here conversationally, which is part of what's fascinating. Um, he's bad at this kind of upper-class conversation. Um, here's some more. I, I, <laughs> You could play all these Monty scenes because they're just...
5: Indeed, I remember my first agent. Raymond Duck. This dreadful little Israelite. Four floors up on the Charing Cross Road and never a job at the top of them. I'm told you're a writer too. Do you write poems? No, I, I wish
2: I could, just thoughts, really. Are you published?
1: Oh, no. Where did you school? He went to the other place, Monty.
5: Oh, he went to Eton. <coughs> Get the damn little swine! <laughs>
0: Here, Withnell's lying. He didn't go to Eton. And you hear the casual uh, racism there, the casual anti-Semitism, as Monty describes his first agent. Again, in character... Of someone of this type and this era. But it does ring a little false to modern ears.
5: Very well.
0: So, you know, they're running a game here on Monty, and that's that's important as we get into the later events of the film. One of the extraordinary things in the film is the use of real music in the soundtrack starting. With this use of Jimi Hendrix here.
5: There must be some kind of way out of here. Said a jumper to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Business man there to drink my wine. Scott!
0: So what's great about the use of the Hendrix here is, A, it's so atypical for a film of its time. The Hendrix estate is not really known for licensing films. Um, And I think Robinson says in one of these things that after this film, they never again licensed the music for use in any film that uh, glorified drugs or alcohol. So, But what's great about this Jimmy song is... You know, again, this is a cover of the Bob Dylan original, and it's a song that I think is chosen here, although it doesn't particularly fit the environment or the events per se, but it feels like the dawning of the 70s to me, the darkness descending after the spell of bright magic that was the 60s. It, it has a dark and sinister overtone. But I was getting lazy. So on the one hand, it works as just a, an incredible kind of toe-tapping, rock-on moment of road trippery. But at the same time, the the genius of Jimi Hendrix is so tied up for me in the 60s, drugs, his death. Like, it, it does quote that. And of course, by the time Bruce Robinson is making this film, you know, Jimi has unfortunately already died at 27. And the dream of the 60s had died. And that's what this film is about. And there's also so many great moments that are just throwaway moments that speak to the writerly eye that Bruce had. At one point, uh, with Neil. you know, Marwood does all the driving in the, in the film except for one famous sequence, but... Uh, With Noel is in the passenger seat, swinging out of a bottle of booze, and he says, "You know, I'm going to have a doze." This effortless assumption that the upper classes have—that of course you're going to do all the driving—and <laughs> as they make their way to the cottage, and they go through, uh, you know, it's it's pointedly you know, sunny in London and then it gets smoky and foggy and then it's nighttime and it's raining and they have one windshield wiper and they arrive at this cottage and it's just so not salubrious. It's dank. There's water running inter- in, inside. There's no firewood. There's no food. Um, it's not quite all that it was cracked up to be. But what's extraordinary and what I missed one of the first kind of few times I watched the film but really appreciated this time was this morning sequence where Marwood gets up and ventures outside and sees where they are for the first time. And there's a very pointed shot where he opens up Withnell's bedroom door and Withnell's passed out. And there's a bottle by his bedside because the doomed sense of Withnell is part of what we're experiencing here. But Marwood is not doomed. And this original music by Dave Dundas and Rick Wentworth is as much a part of what the movie is about as anything else. This emotional, awakening, questioning musical cue. This cue plays as Marwood is moved by the countryside. You know, he's open to it. Withnow is passed out. In fact, not only is he open to it, but he goes inside and changes and gets more fully dressed so that he can explore it more fully. And the world is further opened for Marwood here. Again, he's the avatar of Bruce Robinson's own personal experience with his Withnow, Vivian, who died a terrible, terrible alcoholic death. And this moment of heart and wonder is so simply portrayed, but so effectively portrayed. And then the comedy comes back in as he (laughs) meets this unhelpful rural agricultural mother who, whose son works the farm. Um, But that scene is so important to me. There's This interlude of their experiencing the rural life in the countryside, which includes, you know, some of them are, I mean, you could quote all of the films, all of the film, all of the lines in this film are quotable. If you wanted to do them justice, you'd have to do every single one of them. Here's certainly one of them.
1: Are you the farmer? Shut up, I'll deal with this. We've gone on holiday by mistake. We're in this cottage.
3: (laughs)
0: That's again, that's Bruce Robinson at his genius best. Um, And again, there's no scenes of Withnell and Marwood really having fun or even enjoying each other's company. Um, There's a scene where they go to the Crown and Crow, uh, which uh, which is the local pub. And... What's brilliant is that the film cuts in in a way where, you know, if they did enjoy each other's company, we don't get to see that. We're not watching that part of the film. We're watching a part of the film where Withnail creates a problem, you know, where his attitude and ir- irritability um, creates an issue. And this... (laughs) Withnell's cowardice is established.
1: What you? A coward you are, Withnell! An expert on bulls, you are not!
0: (laughs) This is where they inadvertently let this huge bull out. And I just love Richard E. Grant's delivery of this next line from Withnell after the crisis has been solved through no help
5: Shut
1: that gate and keep it shut! (laughs)
0: I think an evening at the Crow. (laughs) That's just. If
2: the crowned crown ever had life, it was dead now. This is such a great description. It was like walking into a lung. A sulfur-stained, nicotine yellow, and fly-blown lung. His landlord was a retired alcoholic with military pretensions and a complexion like the inside of a teapot. By the time the doors opened, he was arsehole on rum. And got progressively more arsehold. So they could take no more and fell over about 12 (laughs) o'clock.
0: How's that for a description? God, the Bruce Robinson writing is just so incredible. It's gotta be one of the greatest screenplays ever written. And the film really comes alive again when Monty returns. You know, they have this evening out at the pub and then they're back uh, after meeting the poacher, which is great. That sets up some of the little... Farsical business that goes on, and some other great lines. Um, and then this this moment from from Withnall, um, as they walk back.
1: I see that silent heap hanging about up here. I'll take the bastard next to him. Bastards, you all suffer. I'll show the lot of you. I'm gonna be a
4: star
0: just shouting it into the nothingness. And imagine if Withnell had become a star, how disastrous that would have been for all involved. Um, So it isn't until the appearance of Monty again at the cottage that we really start to get to the heart of the matter here. And this to me is the emotional center of the film.
5: I, I do apologize for last night. It was perfectly inconsiderate of me. Oh, that's
2: perfectly all right, Monty. You've been
5: busy in here? Yeah, as of me. How did you repair the window? Oh, I didn't break it. Merely forced it a little. I'm sorry if I frightened you.
0: Now, of course, this is all playing into... that. You know, I said before, the screenplay doesn't really follow a lot of the quote-unquote rules of screenwriting. But this whole Monty sequence, the whole kind of MacGuffin that's set up here which we don't yet know about. Marwood certainly doesn't yet know about, but it's all kind of brilliantly constructed and set up by Bruce Robinson. Here's just a
5: great Monty bit. Yielding place to new. God fulfills himself in many ways. And soon, I suppose, I shall be swept away by some vulgar little tumor. Oh my boys, my boys, we're at the end of an age. We live in a land of weather forecasts and breakfasts that set in, shat on by Tories, shoveled up by labor. And here we are, we three, perhaps the last island of beauty in the world.
0: I mean, it's just so brilliant. You know, um, let alone that little political soliloquy, which says so much, shat on by Tories, shoveled up by labor. Um, God, it's just, it's brilliant writing, you know? And Richard Griffiths is just... Away
5: by some a little
0: much. He's just such so the perfect vessel for this. Oh, my.
5: My boys, we're at the end of an age. We live in a land of weather forecasts and breakfasts that set in. That is so genius.
0: You know, to lament this era they're living in, an era of weather forecasts (laughs) and breakfasts that set in. God, it's so economical and brilliant. There's another neat little bit of Montyism here that def- definitely comes directly from uh, Bruce Robinson's life. And again, this is part of my thesis here that Monty contains so much heart and soul here, even though he fills a a almost monstrous role. Uh, but listen to him here.
5: garlic, rosemary, and salt. I brought two of these in case either of you was any good in the kitchen. I'm not. Oh, of course you are. Cooking is one of the natural instincts. Listen, Monty, it is all very kind of you, but really,
2: I think I ought to be out there getting some work done on the car.
5: Nonsense. You haven't time. We're taking late luncheon at three. I'm afraid we have to leave by three, Monty. Leave? Oh, didn't he tell you? We have to get back to Sinai. Sign on?
2: At a labour exchange? Yeah, it's sort of fashionable,
5: actually. All the actors do it, even Redgrave. But surely you could forego for just this one occasion. I mean, I've come a very long way to see you both. Can't, actually. I mean, I'd love to stay, but
2: he's more adamant to get back than I am. Then
5: we must choose our moment. And have a word with him. I'm sure together we could persuade him. There. Now, garlic, rosemary, and salt. I can never touch meat until it's cooked. As a youth, I used to weep in butcher shops.
0: That's a true story from Bruce Robinson's youth, by the way. He's a pretty adamant vegetarian, I take it, and he, he too used to weep in, in butcher shops. And there's a little bit of a moment when Withnell returns that is a giveaway to what is to come here. Of course, Monty is, is lightly putting the moves on Marwood because unbeknownst to Marwood, Monty has been told by Withnell that Marwood is a homosexual who's available for Monty's pleasure during this weekend. And there's a little hint of a brilliant look that Richard E. Grant gives when Monty returns that just gives that away.
5: I trust that their shapes will not offend your palace. Chin-chin. To a delightful weekend in the country.
0: <laughs> and this is another great use of music here is when they're driving into the town and Monty's role is so out of place in this agricultural countryside village. And, of course, you know, part of their taking advantage of Monty is they give him... he Monty gives them money to buy Wellingtons, and instead they just get, as they say, completely arse at the pub.
2: You want to get in there, don't
0: we? And then they spot a tea shop.
2: Eat some cake. Soak up the booze.
0: <laughs> Which is... Probably one of the more famous scenes in the film.
1: All these uh, dowagers. All right, here. Yeah?
3: What do you want?
1: Cake. All right,
3: here. Yeah? I, I
0: love Withnell's line and Richard E. Grant's delivery of All right, here. Yeah? You know, they're completely plastered, they look ridiculous, but pointedly, Cake and,
1: tea. and they mention this Didn't in the. Hear?
0: said she'd closed. Bruce mentions this. What they're not dress? dressed like sixties freaks, which oh, is really critical to, to the enduring you. nature of the film. I to be the proprietor. You know, they're not Dayglow freaks no, who used to paint their face. They're ah, Whitnell is dressed in the, the Shabby formerly grand rags aware. of his class. We're
1: working on a film up here. Location, see. We might want to do a film in here. You're drunk. Just bring out the tape cake and fine wine
3: if you don't leave we'll call the police
1: balls we want the finest wines available to humanity we want them here and we want them now miss Blenner has it telephone the police it's all right. miss Blenner has it I'm
2: warning you if you do you're fired <laughs> we are multi-millionaires
1: we shall buy this place and fire you immediately yes we'll buy this place we will install a fucking jukebox in here <laughs> Life and all up a bit. The police, Miss Brenner, has it.
5: Just say
0: that. That's actually a moment where Richard E. Grant is laughing for real in the scene, which is talked about a lot in some of the making of stuff. They kept it in. Uh, they just did the scene so many times that he was actually laughing there. This is actually one of the few times that Withnell and Marwood are having a good time together.
3: In
1: Our the cars film. Arrived. We'll be back. We're coming back in here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's very well done. And Richard E. Grant brilliantly plays uh, drinking without having to do it. And Monty and these scenes that then come uh, in the evening time at the cottage.
5: By trees and nature, one feels a glorious stirring of the senses, a rejection of poisonous inhibition, and a fecund motion of the soul. Except, of course, the problems tend
2: to take the edge of the pleasure. I mean,
5: with no proper facilities, all the glorious trials of youth, dear boy. When I was a lad, I'd rocket off on my tantrum with Ricklesworth, and we'd just ride and ride. And at night we'd find some barn and fall asleep with the perfumes of nature sighing on our skin. Would it be in bad form to plagiarise a toast? Depends entirely on the quality of the wine. In this instance,
1: most certainly would not. In that case, to a delightful weekend in the country. Oh, splendid!
5: We expected a volley of argument concerning Mister Redgrave. Forgetting about Jake, not another word, (laughs) not another word,
3: Jake.
0: Here, you know, this is the this is the plot mechanism by which the friendship comes to an end, really. And it's that Marwood begins to sense what is going on, Um, but even within Monty's kind of would-be seduction
5: long time, it's intercut de with these brilliant brings back such memories of oxford, oh, oxford.
2: <laughs> followed by yet another anecdote about his sensitive crimes in a punt with a chap called norman who had red hair and a book of poetry stained with the butter drips from crumpets
5: i often wonder where norman is now <laughs> <laughs> Probably wintering with his mother in Guildford. A cat and rain. Vim under the sink and both bars on. But oh. Uh,
0: again, just these brilliant sketch descriptions. Vim under the sink and both bars on. The bars being the heat, the heating unit in whatever council flat or semi-detached home Monty's talking about.
5: Come on, lads, let's get home. The sky's beginning to bruise. Night must fall and we shall be forced to camp.
2: He's up in my room, all right? That's the condition, all right? All right. I want the room with the lock agreed to all right, Alf. All right, all right.
0: And so the the comedy that befalls, the sex comedy that befalls in the evening uh, with Monty breaking into Marwood's room... After Withno completely fails to uphold his part of the agreement, you know these these are these are wonderfully played. They're played for comedy, but there's more going on. So when this is Monty's
5: first
0: confrontation
5: of Marwood here, but not that tired. Hey. Eh? Are you a sponge or a stone? What do you mean? Do you like to experience all facets of life, or do you shut yourself off from new experience? I voted conservative. Are you faithful? whom? Faithfulness isn't selective.
2: No, I quite agree. It's more a question of selecting to whom
5: one will be faithful. Have you selected? I'm terribly tired. I've been watching you all evening. You've been avoiding my eyes, haven't you? Your eyes? Mm. At luncheon, you couldn't tear your gaze from mine. This evening, you barely looked at me. What did he say to you? Nothing. You can tell me.
2: I assure you nothing, Monty.
0: This is such a well-played and well-written scene. That line that Monty opens with, are you a sponge or a stove? That is directly what Zeffirelli said to Bruce Robinson in that hotel room in Rome in 1967. Are you a sponge or are you a stone? And I think what is truly extraordinary here in all of these Monty scenes, but particularly in this final scene where Monty comes into the bedroom and has his face so devastatingly lightly rouged and powdered and made up.
5: I had to come. I tried not to. Oh, how I tried not to. Listen, Monty,
2: something I have to explain to you. you
5: needn't explain. He's told me everything. He told me that first day you came to Chelsea. What's he told you? He told me about your arrest on the Tottenham Court Road. He told me about your problems. How you feel. Your desires.
4: Problems? What problems?
5: You are a toilet trader. He told you that? You mustn't blame him. You mustn't blame yourself. I know how you feel and how difficult it is. And that's why you mustn't hold back, let it ruin your youth as I nearly did over Eric. It's like a tide. Give in to it, boy. Go with it. It's society's crime, not ours.
2: I'm not homosexual, Yes, you are. Of
5: course you are. You're simply blackmailing your emotions to avoid the realities of your relationship with him.
0: And what's... what's particularly brilliant here is Bruce is also doing some subtle political lifting here because I think at the time in the sixties in England, it was, it was a crime to be gay punishable by jail. And so there's a sensitivity to a outrageous, flamboyant, desperate, sad character like Monty there is also a human side, an understanding side. The writer is understanding of the monster that tried to attack him. And I think this is what is underneath all of these brilliant Monty scenes, particularly this scene where Monty is at his most ridiculous, but also at his most vulnerable and his most truthful, the things that weren't available to him, that he didn't have the courage to face. now. At the same time, which is like, that's pathos enough for any one scene. But at the same time, there's also this plot being revealed to us through Monty and through Marwood's reactions where we now realize for the first time in the last 20 minutes of the film that the whole reason the country house was made available to them was that Withnell told this terrible story that Marwood was gay, was picking up guys in toilets and had been leading this repressed life, and perhaps Monty could help him to find some sense of himself, and that this is all just a lie that Withnil told Monty in order to secure the cottage and to put his friend in this situation.
3: But you love him,
5: and it isn't his fault he cannot love you any more than it's mine that I adore you. Couldn't we allow ourselves just this one moment of indiscretion? No. He need never know. I don't care what he knows, Monty. You've got to go. You've got to leave. If you want to humiliate me, humiliate me. I adore you. Tell him if you must. I no longer care. I mean to have you even if it must be burglary.
1: It's not me. It's him.
0: Now here, you know, Marwood lies and tells Monty that he's actually in love with Withnell in order to escape this situation because Monty is essentially going to sexually assault Marwood here. And the seriousness of this is underscored with comedy. Yes. But it's, it's leavened in the, in the aftermath of, of Monty. If
5: I'd known that, I would never have attempted to come between you.
0: Monty (laughs) buying the explanation.
2: I respect you for your sensitivity. I thank you for it. But you must leave. Yes. Yes. You'd better
3: go to him.
0: I intend to. This instant. Now, that... That... Now, let's not forget here what's going on. Monty is a victim of both... Of these individuals lying to him. Now, of course, Marwood's lie is in order to get out of an impossible situation that he's been put into by Withnell, who has concocted this incredible set of circumstances, which puts him at risk of assault by Monty in this scene. But at the same time, the only way out of it for him is to use his acting skills and then to pretend that he's in love with Withnell and that's why he can't have this assignation with Monty. And the way that Griffiths plays that dawning awareness is played completely for real, even though the man is standing there in full face makeup, you know, women's makeup. And the vulnerability that Griffiths allows is extraordinary. And what's even more extraordinary is this moment the following morning after there's been this, this is the break. The break has occurred in this scene after the Monty attack scene in Withnell's bedroom where Marwood confronts him for all of his lies. This is, this is where things rupture. Fighting
2: a naked man? How dare you tell him I'm a toilet trader?
1: It's a tactical necessity. If I hadn't told him you were active, we'd never have got the cottage. I'd never have wanted it, not with him in it. <coughs> I never thought he'd come all this way. Monty, he'd go to New York. It's calculated risk. What is all this tactical necessity and calculated risk? This is me, naked
2: in a corner. And how dare you tell him I love you? And how dare you tell him you rejected me? How dare you tell him that?
1: Sorry about that. Got a bit carried away. Sort of said it without thinking.
2: Well, let me tell you something, Withnell. If he comes into my room again, it's murder, and you will be held responsible in law.
0: (laughs) So, you know, Withnell's not really sorry. He's kind of laughing. But this heartbreaking moment the following morning at breakfast, where Marwood is reading the note that Monty left...
2: Perhaps it is appropriate justice for the eavesdropper that he should leave as his trade determines in secrecy and in the dead of night. I do sincerely hope that you will find the happiness which, alas, has always been denied to me. I am yours ever faithfully, Montague H. Wisner. Poor old bastard.
1: I would say, now that represents a degree of hypocrisy I've hitherto suspected in you, but not noticed due to highly evasive skills. Christ, you'll suffer for this.
2: What
0: you have done will have to be paid for.
1: I'll say one thing for Monty. He keeps a sensational seller.
0: In this scene, the purpose here is to show that one of these two people is moved by Monty's humanness and his predicament. And Withnell only cares about drinking the 53 Montrachet and having a plate of Monty's food. Now, here is one of the scenes I mentioned earlier that Richard E. Grant absolutely has to nail and carry. There's about to be a telegram delivered, which, for these two starving actors, gives Marwood an opportunity that Withnell has never had and we kind of intimate will never have. Telegram. And it's a great example of a scene that allows it to play out without having to say what's going on. We know that Marwood has been waiting for word of a role. So he reads the telegram himself and then he just hands it. And we allow the reaction to be on Richard E. Grant's face right here. And it's the jealousy. Well done. And the insincerity... Well, it
2: doesn't mean to say I've got it. They probably just want to see me again. Well, that settles it then. We leave immediately.
1: What? Get your kid together. We're leaving in half an hour. Half an hour? Don't be ridiculous. I need at least an hour for lunch.
0: You know, that's one of the most important scenes of the film. And Richard E. Grant's face... um, allowing the reaction to play on his face for two actors here. Again, the truth of you're happy, but you're jealous. And all of this is communicated on Richard E. Grant's face and his use of stillness and his saying of the thing he knows he's supposed to say and has to say, but really no more. And then the stalling. Like, well, obviously we have to go back. What? No, I need at least an hour for lunch. And that's leavened by the comedy of the next sequence, which is where he is arrested. And then they return back to uh, the flat for more genius, (laughs) more genius Danny, (laughs) who has occupied their home uh, while they've been away in the country (laughs) with his business partner of the doll, the shitting doll that they're going to make. I mean, one last...
4: How did you get in? Blast of you. Ingenuity, the man. Come up the drain pipe. <laughs> do you like a smoke? Yes. No thanks, I've got a call to make. What are you going to do with those? The joint I'm about to roll requires a craftsman. It can utilise up to 12 skins. It is called the Campbellwell coat. It's impossible to use 12 papers on one joint. It's impossible to make a Camberwell carrot with anything less. Who says it's a Camberwell carrot? I do. I invented it in Camberwell and it looks like a carrot. Do you realise this gaff's overrun with rodents? (laughs) Just again,
0: Danny is just such an incredible character and a fully formed character. Well, you know, one thing I forgot to mention about Monty, I, I keep my mind just keeps going back to Monty because I think he's such a fascinating dimensional character and a creation from Bruce Robinson. But here's something that struck me: the fascinating thing about this character is that so much of the plot mechanics obviously come out of his 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 own terrible experience with an abuser in his director on the set in Italy. Yet Monty is the most dimensional feeling and sympathetic creature in the film. And I think this again speaks to the writerly eye that sees even those who would or have done us harm. We see those even maybe more clearly than they see themselves. And I think, going back to the the Weinstein issue, When you read or listen to women talking about those experiences in the hotel rooms, much of which were exactly like Bruce Robinson's experience involving seemingly innocent setups, like why don't you have a shower? Why don't you enjoy the room? And then fall down into this horrific moment, this trap that's being sprung. And I think when you read those testimonies and you, you hear those words, they often recall such minute details because for the abuser, these are just people who are yet another in a long line of people who put themselves or find themselves in situations which allow the abuser to take advantage of the situation. But for the victim, it's probably the life-altering moment terribly recalled in the smallest of details. I think it's extraordinary to me that Robinson has such tenderness ultimately towards Monty, who is really just the sort of lonely, sad, failed to launch character of his class and his time. And I think Robinson has such, such awareness of all of these things going on with Monty and Richard Griffiths, my God, just bringing all of that to life. For all that Monty is in the movie, he's operating on heinously false information provided by Withnell. He's reacting to false information provided by Marwood in order to extract himself from this situation. But it's undeniable that with Monty's arrival in the cottage, life returns to the cottage. Look at the scenes before Monty's arrival. The place is not salubrious. It's cold, it's dank. When Monty is in the cottage, the set dressing has changed. The cottage is warm. It's glowing. It's filled with food and drink and firewood. And they're taking advantage of Monty. They're making fun of Monty. This is also part of, I think, what turns Marwood against Withnil finally and against this time of life. And then we get Danny coming back, again, the other side of the Monty character. These are characters for whom the passing of the 60s means different things, right? For Monty's generation, as we get into the 70s and the 80s, well, all of a sudden, Monty's style of life is not illegal. Maybe he's more free to be himself, and as such, he doesn't need to act quite the way that he does. But he is still a product of his class. He is still lost within this miasma of privilege. And he's still this character that his times have contributed to making him. Whereas Danny is the only person in the movie who's dressed like, quote unquote, the 60s in quotation marks. You know, for Danny, um, the end of the 60s has a more jarring finality, perhaps. So a
4: fucking dog. No, that is a dog. Belongs to the fellow downstairs. Does his dog get in the oven?
3: So,
0: you know, for Danny, he kind of has this final uh, moment here where he's talking about the end of the 60s. You know? I mean, it happens after they smoke the Camberwell Carrot. And they just get so incredibly stoned. And there's so many laughably brilliant...
4: Cross grows at exactly 2,000 feet above sea level. You got the part, man.
0: This is another Richard E. Grant moment
4: here. <coughs> i got a different
2: one. <coughs> they want me to play the lead. Congratulations.
4: Where exactly have you
0: two been? That, Holiday in the countryside. That one word... Congratulations. Glassy eyed, unserious. He doesn't mean it. He's so jealous. He's so consumed with himself. And it's, it, it, it's again one of Northern those. There's
4: a country coming down from its trip. Here's this. We are 91 days from the end of this decade, and there's going to be a lot of refugees. Yeah! <laughs> They'll be going round this town. Shall it bring out your dead?
0: You know, this is the end of the 60s, and Danny is only too aware of the fact that he is going to be among the dead. This, this moment, I'm going to find this line because it's, it's so good.
4: What are you talking about, Danny? Politics, man. If you're hanging onto a rising balloon, you're presented with a difficult decision. Let go before it's too late, or hang on and keep getting higher, posing the question, how long can you keep a grip on the rope? They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. The greatest decade in the history of mankind is over. And as presuming Ed here has so consistently pointed out, we have failed to paint it black.
0: And there you have it. That is the moment. And the next cut is to clean shaven, hair cutted Marwood, looking fresh faced, 20 years younger, and about to embark on his life in the 70s. And what this reminds me of and puts me in the mind of, ironically, is Bruce Robinson's ode to the era here, this awareness of the end of the 60s and what it came to represent. You know, Bruce would go on to put one of those Hunter S. Thompson books on screen, as I mentioned in the Rum Diary. And this reminds me of and gives me a very good excuse to quote more fully from what I think is one of the very best selections of Hunter S. Thompson's writing. Now, much like Danny, Hunter lived for a few decades after the 60s, but it wasn't an easy existence. And in many ways, he never quite fit in with the times he found himself living in after that era. Like Withnil and I as a movie, Hunter, as a writer, is often branded with this comedic satirist brand and maybe not given his due as a writer. In much the same way, I think a lot of Bruce Robinson's turns of phrase in this screenplay are so phenomenally economical and spot on. It reminds me a lot of this passage, perfectly rendered on screen by Johnny Depp in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's a passage that speaks to the bittersweet nature of the reminiscences of people like Hunter and Bruce Robinson, people who lived through this magical time when change seemed truly possible. And Hunter is writing here about San Francisco of the 60s, but the sentiments to me are equally apropos to London of the 60s. I'm going to read this section, Hunter writes. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something, maybe not in the long run. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time in the world, whatever it meant. History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit. But even without being sure of history— It seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then, the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time and which never explain in retrospect what actually happened. My central memory of that time seems to hang on one or five or maybe 40 nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore half crazy and, instead of going home, aimed the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour, wearing L.L. Bean shorts and a Butte sheepherder's jacket. booming through the Treasure Island tunnel, not quite sure which turnoff to take when I got to the other end, always stalling at the toll gate, too twisted to find neutral while I fumbled for change, but being absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was, no doubt about it at all, there was madness in any direction at any hour. If not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate or down 101 to Los Altos or La Honda. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle, that sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense, We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. That piece of writing from Hunter S. Thompson is rightfully held up as maybe the greatest bit of synopsis to this transition moment from the 60s to the 70s. And it's what I think this entire film is about. And it is brilliantly, brutally put on display as Withnell is left and Marwood is the one who leaves. And this poignant parting scene between the two of them.
2: My dad'll pick up the boxes in a week. And he's gonna do something about the car.
1: I'm off now. Already. I've got us a bottle open. I confiscated it from Monty's supplies. 53 Margot, best of the century. I'm sure he wouldn't resent us parting drink. I
2: can't, wish. No. I've got to walk to the station. I'll be late.
1: There's always time for a drink. I don't have the time. All right.
0: That's the declaration right there. That's the dividing line that Marwood has, has etched and now understands exists. For Whithnall, there's always time for a drink. For Marwood...
2: I can't, wish. no. I've got to walk to the station. I'll be late.
3: There's
1: always time for a drink. I don't have the time. All right. I walk with you through the power.
0: And this is such a different Withnell, right? All of a sudden, solicitous, uh, needy, desperate, because he knows too that it's over. And this film is really about different ways of reacting to the end of the '60s. No, no more.
1: Listen, Withnell, it's a stinker. Why don't you go back? Because I want to walk into the station. Look we'll down. Please don't.
2: I really don't want you to. I
4: shall miss you, Liffner.
1: I shall miss you too. Chin Chin.
0: That's the final scene that Richard E. Grant has to just so perfectly play as he approaches the wolf enclosure in the park and gets ready to deliver his hamlet. And this is not the way that Bruce Robinson's screenplay originally ended.
1: I am late, but wherefore I know not lost all my mirth. And indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory.
0: In his original screenplay, after this parting scene, withnell goes back to the flat, pours the 53 into both barrels of the gun and blows his brains out. Ironically, sadly, minus the wine, that's how Hunter S. Thompson took his own life, in his home. An ignominious end for... One of the brightest lights of the 60s, someone whose sensitive and gentle essential soul was all too aware of the promise and the loss of that promise and what America became in the decades after the 60s. The issues we still continue to struggle with. Instead,
1: no women neither.
0: Withnell is given this moment to shine, as he does. And then he walks away into the rain, and I think brilliantly this is shot from inside the enclosure. So Withnell is out in the world, but he's the one locked in somewhere. He's locked in by his addictions, his alcoholism. And as the camera rises above the enclosure, the music kicks back in. And then we have the credits. And it's just such a brilliant and enduring film. But I just wanted to say that I got so much more out of this film than I thought was there uh, in this reappraisal of it. And I want to share that with you and I want to encourage you to go check out some more of the film for yourself and see if you respond to some of the more poignant and I think really deeply kind of intellectual subtext of things that's going on uh, underneath the comedy for which the film is rightfully known and appreciated for. Because yes, there are very few films as funny as Nell and I, but the comedy and I think the enduring nature of the film is because there is such sadness and, um, and beauty contained uh, underneath that amount of laughs. So with a little more King Curtis to get us out, I thank you once again for joining me and indulging me on the full cast and crew podcast. I think we'll probably have a little more to say about Nil and I coming up. But for now, I'll just say thanks for listening.